When was the last time you read a book of the Old Testament in a deep and sustained way? Chances are it's been a while. Even if we embrace the whole Bible as God's inspired and inerrant word, as we should, the truth is that it can be easy for us to focus much more attention on the New Testament than we do the Old. In our interview today, I'm talking with Greg Lanier about the many ways that the Old Testament stands as an indispensable foundation for the New. We discuss how the New Testament writers read the Old Testament for themselves, why they believed it so clearly pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, and why we as Christians today should be more eager to dig into the whole Bible for ourselves. Greg is Associate Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He also serves as Associate Pastor of River Oaks Church and is the author of a number of books, including Old Made New, A Guide to the New Testament Use of the Old Testament from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about how the New Testament writers used the Old Testament and in, in what they said, what they wrote down in the, the scriptures that we have from them. Uh, but before we get into that, I just wanted to, I guess, get your thoughts on a broader trend that I think we've probably all seen. Uh, Crossway's done surveys in the past that have shown that as a general rule, Christians spend more time reading and studying the New Testament than they do the Old Testament. And uh, there's probably lots of reasons that we could give for why that might be. My guess is that uh, one obvious reason is that the Old Testament can sometimes feel more intimidating to us than the New, a little harder to understand. I wonder, do you resonate with that? Has that ever been your experience? Yeah, it's not really all that surprising, I suppose. Um, You know, it's from a chronological perspective, it's so much more far, it's so much farther removed uh, from what we're familiar with. Of course, the New Testament is not nearly two millennia removed from our current context, but it still feels a bit more familiar. Yeah. You know, Greek cities, sailing ships, it, it sounds more familiar because we're, we're used to Jesus and his parables and his teachings. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's no surprise at all that if someone's going to sit down who's a casual Bible reader, pick up their copy of NIV, ESV, whatever, they're going to gravitate towards something in Matthew versus Second Chronicles. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's not really all that surprising. Um, I, th- I think there's also, in certain quarters... It depends on the church you're in and that kind of thing. A, a kind of unspoken or sometimes overt uh, neo-Marcionite view of things, and Marcion being the kind of one of the earliest "quote unquote" heretics of the early church who famously poo-pooed the Old Testament <laughs> and its God uh, as as being the sort of bad God of the Old Testament, and Jesus being the nice God of the New Testament. So there there can be a, either a a principled way in which certain big name preachers and ministries intentionally kind of distance us from the Old Testament and the problems that it raises, such as the conquest of the Canaanites or stoning adulterers or what have you, uh, or even a, a sort of naive, like, well, Jesus is in the New Testament, so I'm going to kind of go with the New Testament and, and you know, my little Gideon Bible with the Psalms and the New Testament is sort of what I need. So, I mean, it, mm. it kind of depends on the background you come from, but it's not really all that surprising. But I do think even serious Bible readers and serious expository churches are probably going to lean pretty hard in the New Testament direction uh, unless they're they're disciplined in, in mm. maintaining a, a steady 
Old Testament diet, then even if you do have uh, some sort of commitment to the Old Testament, you're mostly going to camp out in Genesis, Psalms, latter part of Isaiah, Jonah. Something like that. Uh, Not a lot of comprehensive knowledge of Zephaniah running around out there. Right. Well, so I want a quick question about one of the things you just said. Uh, I think a lot of us uh, resonate or have seen examples of non-Christians sort of attacking the Christian faith in part by attacking the Old Testament and some of these these difficult passages or the, the way that it depicts God that uh, maybe on a surface level can feel a little bit different than how the New Testament depicts Jesus and God. Um, but but you also mentioned that, that we sometimes see this neo-Marcionite uh, approach to the Old Testament even in the church. So is that is that what you're getting at? Where are you seeing this emphasis from, I guess, Christians? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to kind of name names, and there's obviously been many rounds of uh, the debate, but the, the idea of unhitching from the Old Testament as popularized by some big-name folks uh, that, that don't need to necessarily be explicitly named, um, I mean, that's part of it. Uh, the Old Testament is embarrassing. Mm. Uh, the Old Testament is old. Uh, we now are in the Jesus era, and so let's just, let's just sort of cut ties from the Old Testament, cut our losses. It, you know, I think the idea is it pre- presents these immense challenges with contemporary culture uh, in terms of sexual ethics, in terms of creation and science, uh, and the, te- the mm. alleged tension thereof. Um, you know, the purported idea that, that God commanded the genocide of the Canaanites. Um, I mean, you name it, there's a ton of it. Yeah. And so I think some churches... Uh, by practice or sort of big thinkers and, and teachers, pastors uh, are self-consciously trying to distance themselves from it. Of course, there's been a lot of pushback on that. I don't need to retread those waters, but um, I think there it, it probably comes from a good place, a, a, an apologetic desire to make Christian Christianity more palatable in a very different uh, landscape than sort of the Bible Belt of, of the past 50 years. So, I mean, I think there's a, uh, to be as charitable as I can, I think there it, the idea perhaps for many starts in a good place. Uh, I just think it's sort of fundamentally naive. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's, a, it's, an op- it's not an option that the New Testament gives us. You know, I was just doing some, some work on uh, Jesus's, you know, his woes against Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin and it's not the nice Jesus that I think a lot of folks want to to pass off. Uh, where he actually, it's interesting, he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, which of course is like the, the passage that either gets, you know, it's used as a bludgeon or it's the passage that shall not be named uh, in contemporary, contemporary discussions of sexuality. And it's interesting that Jesus goes there as a kind of paradigm for the judgment that he will bring uh, in a sort of eternal time frame and so you know again that's not the familiar hipster wondering guru jesus that i think the idea that we need to distance ourselves from the old testament because jesus is nice and cuddly in the new testament that's not even a that's a misconception of the old testament b that's a profound understatement of jesus and so uh yeah there's a lot we could probably say about it that that would take us far afield um But I think it ultimately, I think it comes from a good place, but it's a very muddled, naive, simplistic place that really the New Testament doesn't even give us as an option. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, so I mean, you have that line of uh, of thinking that the the God portrayed in the New Testament is different than the God of the Old, but I think even further and more to the point of what you're getting at in your book is that the New Testament is just replete with quotations and citations and allusions to the Old. Uh, I wonder, one, something I've wondered before, uh, do you happen to have a sense for how many times the New Testament writers are quoting or alluding to a specific Old Testament passage? Yeah, in, in the book I do a catalog at the end where I, tr- <laughs> wow. I try to, uh, and it's, I don't know, 20 plus pages, I, I try to document what the, the generally agreed upon set. Now there's always going to be debate about this or that sort of faint echo. It's easy to pinpoint whenever they actually explicitly say as it is written or something like that. So those are all fairly easy to pin down. Whenever they don't signal it, uh, and you know, Paul will just like use some bit of Deuteronomy without telling you, unless you know Deuteronomy, you don't realize he's doing that. Uh, those are harder to quantify, and it kind of depends on the criteria you use, um, because you know they had much more flexibility in their day in terms of how they would use things. They didn't have to footnote themselves, so to speak. So, uh, point of that being, I attempted to quantify. I ended up with over four hundred uh, other resources nail it down it's something in the 300 range the the hardest part to quantify is like when do you say something is a sort of vague echo of proverbs or whatever or is that just sort of a figment of your imagination so there's a lot of gray area so you're going to be somewhere between call it 100 late hundreds early 200s explicit citations and then you got this big group of uh more imprecise quotations and allusions that are kind of hard to pin down. Mm. You know, some more aggressive numbers are going to be in the thousands, but it's at that point it's like every single word can be traced to the Old Testament, so that that seems to be a bit overzealous as well. Yeah. So yeah. It's something in the I, I usually say three hundred to four hundred, give or take. Yeah. You mentioned that the the sort of standard practices and uh, ways of thinking about quotations in the ancient world are just different than how we would think about those things today. We don't. We footnote everything. That's an important uh, principle for writing. Um, and plagiarism but, is obviously a huge thing. Yeah, that's a concern uh, that, that for we us. With. Yeah. But, but you know, I think something that people might be surprised to hear is that quotation marks weren't even something that uh, right. were actually original to the text. So unpack that a little bit more about how the New Testament writers would have thought about what the rules were, so to speak, for using uh, citing uh, a passage from the Old Testament. Yeah, and it wouldn't really just apply to the Old Testament. You know, Paul quotes from uh, pagan philosophers at various points in Acts and 1 Corinthians and such, 1 Timothy. Um, and you, know, you have some other evidence of, of that kind of thing going on uh, as well. So it's not just citing the Old Testament that's relevant. Um, you know, it's, it's actually hard to, to pin down because um, the spectrum of what was allowable was so much broader than today. Um, and it wasn't simply that they didn't have a quotation marks button on their keyboard. <laughs> um, I mean, there were ways that you could mark it, so it's not like they didn't have that function. There's some certain words you can use in Greek. There's also, uh, you know, as it is written, you could, you could introduce it that way. So they did actually have a way to indicate it. And in fact, some ancient manuscripts would even put these little carrot marks out on the margins to show, you, oh yeah, this is from the Old Testament. Uh, so you see that pretty early as well. Um, and so they did have some some technology, so to speak, uh, or, I don't know, markup, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they, they didn't have bold or what have you. They, they had ways to do it. 
but for them, it was much more of a broad spectrum of um, we are drawing on ancient sources, whether that's Homer or Moses, and the whole spectrum in between, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, to directly verbatim quote it or to maybe even tweak it because I think that person was wrong if I'm quoting Plato, uh, or I want to be clever and kind of remix it a bit like we might do even today if we quote uh, some famous figure and like change a word to be funny or whatever. So there's a lot of different things you can do. And you see the whole spectrum in the New Testament where sometimes it is word for word in the precise order with all the same verb tenses, with all the same case endings, which you don't really have in English, uh, as its original source every single time. So, for instance, quotations of Leviticus 19.18 um, several times in the New Testament, as far as I'm aware, are verbatim the same. Mm. Other times at the end of the spectrum, uh, you might have quotations of the same passage Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 being a famous example. That's Isaiah's commissioning and, uh, you know, go and preach to these people so that seeing they won't see, hearing they won't hear, lest I turn and, and heal them. It's quoted four or five times in the New Testament. Every single time it's different, um, sometimes substantially so, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but, there's, but it's all recognizably from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And none of them would have seen themselves, Jesus, Paul, etc. They would have not have seen themselves as sort of erroneously quoting anything. It just fit with how they did it back then. Mm. You might, you might, tr- you know, you might use a theoretical ellipsis mark, which they didn't actually have, but you could do that by just taking out a phrase that you don't want to include. We do that today. We just have to use punctuation to note it. Uh, you could rearrange the word order. Sometimes they might be working from the Hebrew instead of the Greek, or vice versa. Um, and so there's a lot of moving parts, but for them it was a much more relaxed approach um, that for us to bring modern, you know, Turabian uh, or whoever, <laughs> crossway style guide limitations <laughs> to the table is very, very anachronistic. In fact, it's anachronistic as soon as you move beyond sort of, I don't know, 1600, 1700s, where there's much more flexible and it wasn't deemed to be bad. So, so I mean, it's, a, it's actually quite the wormhole to get into, but it's important for, for lay people to know about because so often, and I mentioned this briefly in the book, I didn't want to get down too much into the weeds, but a lot of times when you're trying to look up a quotation that is in Mark and you want to trace it back to whatever the Old Testament source is, if you're just looking at the ESV or the NIV or NASB or whatever you have, they may not match verbatim. In fact, often they won't match verbatim. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And it's not really, I think, a, speaking of apologetics, uh, some skeptics might say, look, there's an error, there's a contradiction, whatever. Well, that's not even really a relevant point to make because mm. the ancient standards were just so, so different. That It might look like a contradiction in modern standards, but that's not how they were operating. Yeah. So. It's just important to know that you don't necessarily have, as a layperson, you don't necessarily have to be able to kind of sort all that out, but just be aware that uh, the wording, there's a lot of flexibility built into uh, how you might use a a prior source that there's just a higher degree of comfort level with that than today. Yeah. Um, Uh, One of the broad areas in the Bible that I think is most relevant to this conversation of how the New Testament writers are are referencing the Old Testament has to relate to this issue of prophecy. 
Old Testament prophecy that is uh, in some way fulfilled in, in Christ, in Jesus, and the gospel. And, and you argue, along with many others, uh, that the New Testament writers often embrace the idea of Jesus uh, expanding or filling up the meaning of various Old Testament prophecies. And I think that the nuanced approach of how you would understand that and articulate that is maybe a little different than the way I think a lot of Christians, average Christians who are sitting in a pew, uh, would understand the meaning of something like prophecy, a prophecy from the Old Testament. So I wonder if you could explain, expand on that a little bit. What, how should we think about this topic of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment? Yeah, you know, I would make two pr- sort of upfront clarifications on that because I think this is a, a deeply important area. Um, one of the points I make kind of early on in the book, and, it, and it, it's immediately relevant to the conversation we just had, a lot of folks who end up in the place where they're persuaded and then therefore kind of in panic mode or, or whatever um, about the New Testament use of the old and how the apostles distorted the Bible, um, a lot of the ways they get there is that they have a very malnourished understanding of what it means for something to be prophetic and to be fulfilled. And they want to approach every single time Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whomever use the Old Testament as a prophecy that has a direct fulfillment in the New Testament. Therefore, if they then go look up in their Old Testament, they look up Zechariah or you know, Hosea 11 or whatever, and they're like, wait a second. This isn't even a prophecy, hmm. at least not in any reasonable sense. Yeah. Therefore, if I only read this in the New Testament, Matthew 2 or whatever, as a fulfilled prophecy, and it wasn't even given as a prophecy, pff, there you go. There's your proof that the apostles, they're not, not only are they sort of bad exegetes, but they're like turning something into a prophecy that wasn't even a prophecy. They had sort of failed out of the gate. And so I think a lot of the misconceptions. Uh, even among big league scholars, stem from a very wooden, one-size-fits-all approach to prophecy and fulfillment, where they want to say that every single thing is a fulfilled prophecy. And the reality is, that's not what the New Testament authors are doing many, many times. Is that a big component? Yes. You know, when Paul stands up in Acts and says, look, this guy Jesus, who was put to death and has now been raised and has ascended. He is the one who Moses wrote about saying, I'll raise up a prophet from among you who will be better than Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15 stuff. That he is saying that Moses predicted this and it has come to pass. So does that happen? Absolutely. But is it the only thing that happens? No. Um, and th- knowing that that's not the only tool we have, I think is for me has been very freeing, and I think for my students has been very liberating because it makes so much more sense then. If you realize, wait a second, not everything is being crammed into a prophecy mold. Not everything was explicitly a prophecy. Sometimes it's a historical pattern that then the New Testament author says, hey, look, history is repeating itself. Yeah. You know, Stephen does that in Acts 7. It's like, look, here's what Israel always did to its prophets, and they put them to death, and they rejected them over and over again. And you know what? You're doing the exact same thing right now. Mm. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, that was prophesying that this was going to happen in Acts 7, and then he's going to get stoned. He's just saying, no, you're doing what your forefathers did. That's a totally legit way uh, that the New Testament authors draw on the Old Testament. So just having extra categories, I think, is a big part of it. Um, 
and, and realizing that prophecy is not the only uh, tool. Then the other sort of upfront point I would make is that um, under prophecy and fulfillment ha- needs to have a kind of proper definition uh, where sometimes it is a one-for-one, like Isaiah foresaw X, and then 700 years later it comes true. Uh, that's that happens. That that's a category, but it's not only limited to that. Sometimes prophecies have multiple layers of fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the prophets famously foresee judgment by God because of the curses in Deuteronomy, and they're proclaiming the curses of Deuteronomy that, that foreign nations are going to destroy us, but there's going to be a day of restoration. That's just a great example. This is a big category both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, Mark one one and three three starts there, right? quoting uh, Isaiah and Malachi. And so as history plays out, that happens, right? So that's the prophecy fulfilled. And a kind of restoration happens under uh, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all those guys. And this is the kind of, this is where the whole biblical illiteracy thing becomes a problem because all that stuff I just said, a lot of people have no idea what I'm talking about. They've already lost me. Mm. But it's like, oh, I don't know, a third of the Old Testament is dealing with this. So it's actually a tremendously important I was criticized by someone in my church in England because I assumed in a sermon that the audience knew what the exile was. And I, 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 and I responded, if they don't know what the exile is, then that's your fault, not mine, <laughs> as the pastor of that church. Probably shouldn't say that. Um, actually, I think I said that in my heart, uh, not out loud. But anyway, loud. It's, it's, it's true, though. Like We've got to give people these categories. Point being... You have a fulfillment of the of uh, the prophecy in a time of restoration in the 500s and 400s BC, but it's not it's not the final fulfillment because uh, they're still sort of in exile; they're still scattered, and so it's totally legit to say, well, when Jesus comes, that's kind of a new wave of fulfillment, and then when he comes back, that's the final fulfillment. Point of all this is that prophecy has a complicated fulfillment. Mm. Is not just a very simplistic, they said it once and it comes true once. No, they said it once and then kept saying it over and over again. And then God works things out in his uh, plan of redemption in stages. And we see it, the sort of ebbs and flows of Israel's history spilling into the New Testament. So all of that then is background to what do we see in the New Testament? Well, what we see in the New Testament is not some sort of like magic decoder ring uh, where it's like, ooh, now we have the, the answer. Uh, I mean, there's some sense to that. But what they are seeing, and I try to labor to prove this out in the first chapter of the book, what they are seeing is the fulfillment of the ages that all of these good promises of God are now coming into their kind of final stage of fulfillment, but it's tapping into this unfinished story of Israel where we've already gotten a taste of this, where they got to the promised land, but it wasn't the final promised land, where they got a king, but he wasn't the final king, where they got a temple, but it wasn't the final place of worship. They got a sacrificial system, but it's pointing forward to the real sacrifice, where they got judgment of exile that's pointing forward to final judgment. They got restoration that's pointing forward to the day of the Lord, uh, the good side of the day of the Lord, the, the blessings of it. So, um, the New Testament authors were very savvy in how they understand that flow of history. So whenever they're making the claim that a prophecy has been fulfilled, what they mean by that is we're seeing all of this weight of Israel's history 
reach its turning point, typically related to Jesus, but sometimes related to the church or what have you. Sometimes there's prophecies about us being the new temple or what have you. Um, and they see this sort of big historical flow coming to its crescendo with the first and second coming of Jesus. And so as you sit there and listen to me pontificate, I think I think the realization is that it's a much more complex and rich story than I think a lot of folks bring to the table. They, uh, It's very easy to want sort of like a simple answer. Isaiah prophesied X, boom, we see it now. And then you read some blog post like, well, no, Isaiah didn't prophesy that or whatever. Like, well, no, actually there's a, there is a sweep of hundreds and hundreds of years of history and we're still in it. That's what you know fulfilled prophecy is dealing with, that God has been at work and is still at work. And so uh, whether we're talking about Christ's kingly office, his mediatorial role, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the formation of the people of God in the church as the culmination of the people of God in, in ancient Israel, all of that is a fulfillment of God's purposes as it's been playing out. So that's a much richer way to tell the story, but it's a much more complicated way to tell the story. It doesn't, it doesn't fit very well in a one-line you know, blurb on a fancy nature scene on Twitter. But I think it's a better story that we need to equip our people with to make sense of any of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It strikes me that that vision of how that that nuanced and as you say sometimes complicated vision for how the new testament uses the old uh, it is a true vision and it's a uh, a rewarding vision as we dig into that and study that but it does require a lot more of us than maybe we're used to giving right. to the bible it requires a certain knowledge and familiarity and even um intentionality with how we go about studying the old testament which as we've already established is sometimes harder for us than I think right. studying the new. Yeah, and I you know, I don't have a lot of great solutions for that. Um, but one of them I think is being excited about biblical theology and teaching it. Unpack biblical theology and how that has a special maybe relationship to this topic that we're talking about today. Yeah, I mean it, I mean it sort of is that topic. It's essentially you know, biblical theology is, uh, or whatever you want to call it, and I guess there's debate about the, the nomenclature, but I, I don't personally care. Uh, it's understanding the whole sweep of the Bible um, from old to new and how they're connected. And often tracing, you know, a particular theme or right. idea. Tracing yeah. big themes, uh, big, big movements through the Bible. And um, you know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think we want to be doing. In, in grade school and then for people who didn't grow up in the church we got some catching up to do as adults but um, I think there can be a temptation as someone in ministry to get bored by the Old Testament because it's technical and I think uh, or if you're a, if you're a you know Bible study leader um, and that kind of thing let's just jump to Jesus let's just do the Beatitudes or whatever which well, funny and, thing and so, about that it's funny you know even you can't even do the Beatitudes without knowing the Old Testament and the Psalms but anyway so uh, I think it's imperative on us with this generation to say, no, this is exciting. This is, t- and not to be overly postmodernist, but it, it works quite well if that's someone's kind of approach to life. To the extent that the new generations want to find their place in a grand narrative, and we're lacking a grand narrative in the kind of post-war generation, the Bible is the grand narrative uh, for all of humanity. 
uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I think that is a place that we can get people really excited um, if we're not simply kind of cherry-picking verses that we harp on and that kind of thing. Like, no, let's do the whole Bible. Let's trace all these themes. It's all rich and wonderful. And if you do that, then it's going to unlock Scripture for you. That's the kind of stuff that we need to be uh, equipping our kids, our youth, and, and our adult believers with. And what I, what I try to demonstrate from in the book is that maybe the place to start with that isn't a daily Bible reading plan that you tap out of once you get to Numbers, if you even get to Numbers. <laughs> but it's let's follow the New Testament's lead in doing this. Because that's what, the, I mean, the, the, the whole thing I'm trying to describe is I'm not making this up. Greg Beal's not making this up. Your hardest Voss isn't making this up. If, if, if listeners know those names, uh, Stephen and Paul and Jesus are the ones who sort of came up with this. Yeah. And all I'm simply saying is let's be faithful to not just like this chapter verse that we like. That's great from Sermon on the Mount. But how do they tap into the entire story? Because it, maybe that goes back to your point uh, and something I said earlier. To the extent that someone looks at a New Testament quotation like this doesn't make sense as a fulfilled prophecy, that, uh, that assumes that you as the reader know, know the story, right? Um, and, and you're sort of inside Matthew's head. It may very well be that Matthew knows the story better than we do. He certainly signals that in his genealogy and how he brackets Israel's history in a certain very nuanced way. So I wonder if you could then speak as a final question to the person listening right now who does want to, to get to work now on this, who, who feels like, yeah, I, I want to try my hand, uh, maybe in a new way that I've never done before, at understanding, really digging into uh, the Old Testament background uh, to maybe some of these key New Testament passages. So I wonder if you could recommend a passage in the New Testament that does include a quotation or strong allusions to the Old Testament that would be a good starting point for somebody who, who has never really tried to explore that before. What would be one that you'd say to, to start with? I would, well, not to overcomplexify things, I think there's a step zero, especially for someone who maybe realizes they don't know the Old Testament as well as they want to know and want to grow in that area before you actually start hacking away at a specific passage. And I think that step zero is go to the cliff notes of the Old Testament that we already have. And the, the three best examples are going to be Matthew's genealogy. Why are the genealogies there actually a great place to start? Well, just like, you know, in, in some respects, it's helpful today that Ancestry.com and the DNA testing sites and so forth are popular because when I was growing up, no one cared. Um, but now people do more. I think there's a greater realization that Ancestry matters. And the list of names is not just a list of names. Even, even for me today, it's not just a list of names because with the names comes the stories. And so when you mention Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, even if you just have like, a week of VBS at some point when you were a 10-year-old, something about those names rings a bell. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember Abraham tried to sacrifice Isaac. That was crazy. Or, uh, you know, Jacob and Esau wasn't that wild, um, and even if you just have a very rudimentary knowledge of, of the Bible. And so with the names comes the story. And so what's brilliant about Matthew's genealogy, going from Abraham down to Jesus, is that giving us those, and Luke's takes it all the way back to Adam um, in, chapter, in Luke chapter 3, uh, the names are a 
the shortest possible way you can summarize the entire Old Testament. Uh, and what Matthew does, in addition to just giving us a list of, call it 42 some odd names, is he breaks it down into three phases, really four phases if you add the fourth. He goes Abraham through David. So that's the first chunk of Israel's history when it becomes a nation and then it finally gets its classical king because Saul was, Saul was Israel's mistake. Um, and then it goes from David to the exile. And so that's the falling apart. Things were good, things fell apart. And then you have exile to the coming, the sort of partial restoration and the coming of Jesus. He brackets history in a certain way. Uh, that is basically, you know, Genesis up through Second Samuel, then from there to, you know, so it sort of actually gives you a roadmap to understand the entire Bible. And, and, and Matthew's giving it, he's like, if you want to understand Israel's history, let me give you the two-sentence summary. Abraham up to David, David to exile, exile to Jesus. That's the bracketing of history. And so just knowing that, I think, is remarkably important just to give you a basic big picture. So once you start there, I would fast forward either to Acts 13 or Acts 7, maybe go to 13 first, then to 7. But in both of those uh, situations, Acts 7 being Stephen, Acts 13 being Paul, uh, they give a more detailed summary of the history of Israel. Uh, I mean, Stephen's speech is brilliant and sort of tracing through what happened in Egypt and Moses. And then when you get to David and the temple and all these kinds of things, and he kind of puts it all together. Um, and again, it shows you that they were thinking. The, the reason why I think that matters is that Stephen, Paul, Matthew, I think you can, you can make the same case for Luke and Luke chapters one and two, but that's a whole different story. Um, they aren't just cherry picking good proof text from the Old Testament. That's the reason why this matters. You know, the top 10 verses that you put on your Instagram uh, in the ancient world. They had read it very well. They had been taught it very well, and they understood the flow. They understood what the story was and where it ended and where it's going to pick up with the coming of Jesus. And so those are three great. So Matthew 1, Acts 7, Acts 13 are great places to go see, okay, how are the apostles and then Stephen as second generation, how did they grapple with the whole story? Let me get the basic picture. Because I would I would guess, and when I was 20-something, I probably couldn't do it, uh, the vast majority of Christians couldn't sit down and outline the Old Testament in 20 bullets. My guess is most people couldn't do that. Uh, and if that, or, or if you find yourself where you couldn't do that, then go start there, and that'll give you the bullet points. From there, uh, so that was the that's my step zero. If somebody wanted to pick uh, maybe a singular place to start digging in, I would probably say Mark 1, 1 through 3. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones. There's a lot there to unpack. And uh, it's notable because you're like, all right, Matthew starts his gospel, and I'm going to finally get to meet, know Jesus and all that kind of stuff. It's like, man, he starts with a genealogy. What is that about? That's a snoozer. All right, so let's get rid of Matthew. All right, what's the next one? Let's do Matthew. What does Matthew do? The first thing he does right out of the gate is make a prolonged quotation of Isaiah and Malachi and maybe a bit of Exodus. And says, all right, well, let me roll up my sleeves and figure out why does he start the story of Jesus that way? Um, and so starting there, uh, and it is an example I go over in the book at some length, uh, is I think just really fantastic because A, 
he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, all right, you Christians talk about Jesus. You use this fancy word called gospel. I want to figure out what that's about. And he says, if you want to know what the beginning of the gospel of Jesus is, he says, and it sometimes gets obscured in English translations. I would put a comma, not a period, but either way, comma, as it is written, which for me is a pretty mind-blowing insight that Mark says, if you want to know what the starting point is of the gospel, you got to go left in your Bible. you got to go back to the Old Testament, and he, uh, he quotes Isaiah and Malachi in particular, um, and both of the passages, uh, Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, spilling into chapter 4, depending on the version you're using, uh, are just, I think, wonderful uh, ways that, A, capture the longing of Israel for God to come back and restore his people, because that's where the Old Testament ends. Uh, it takes that and it marries it to the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus. It's like when John comes and then Jesus comes, you realize, oh, the story is going to conclude. Isaiah and Malachi ended uh, in Avengers fashion with this story will be concluded in Avengers Endgame. Uh, and then Jesus comes and you finally have Endgame. Um, that was probably a really bad analogy, but I tried. Um, so that would probably go there. And yeah. that, that one I think is it, it, it's a great sort of exercise in studying the wording and there's even there's a lot of Christology stuff. Is you know, I, I would I'm pretty well persuaded that, that Mark is intentionally portraying Jesus as uh, God in a full sense there, but it's also you have this kind of historical fulfillment of God's promise to save his people and all that's going on. So it's a great place to go and it happens to be the right at the beginning of the shortest gospel. So that's um, you know, it's fairly fairly nice place to start as well so yeah well greg thank you so much for yeah helping us to understand our new testaments a little bit better uh, by pointing us back to the old testament uh, we appreciate it well thanks for having me that was greg lanier on the old testament's foundational importance for the new for more be sure to check out his book with crossway old made new a guide to the new testament use of the old testament Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content visit us today at crossway.org.